This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Chris Munns about serverless for startups. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 113. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. Yep, that's what you're listening to, Serverless Chats. I just, usually we have some banter, but I'm so excited for our guest today. I am That's too, my but, only banter. <laughs> but I'm also excited because my oldest daughter just left a few minutes ago. She's going to a Jonas Brothers concert tonight. Um, and I what? told her and her friend, I said, listen, no dancing on top of cars or uh, stumbling out of bars tonight. Uh, that's the only Jonas Brothers song I know. So there was a terrible dad joke. But um, speaking of dads, uh, I think our next guest or our guest this week uh, probably single handedly uh, single handedly keeps uh, Lego in business with all I'm of the yeah. sets that he buys for his kids because I constantly see yeah, it. Um, uh, and basically, I was in a mall the other day uh, for some back-to-school shopping for my kids. I saw a Lego store, and the first thing I thought of was this person. So um, this Thank guest, uh, amazing guest, so happy to have him on today. Uh, he is currently the tech leads or a tech lead slash advisor for startup solution architects at Amazon Web Services. But most of you probably know him because he spent the, f the last four and a half years um, as uh, the leader or leading the developer advocate team for serverless. Um, at AWS. So Mr. Chris Munns is with us. Chris, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Thank you for having me both. I'm excited to be here. And uh, thank you for getting all, all of the words of my new job title out. I, I myself am stumbling over them most days now and I'm introducing myself. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so tech lead slash advisor to the startup solution architects at AWS. So you do say the slash out loud. This was actually the first question I had for you is like, <laughs> is it a spoken slash or do you say like slash dash? Yeah, I don't know if it should be like tech lead and advisor or something. It's kind of a mix. So the the the, the role which we can talk about here is uh, ambiguous, let's say, in terms of certain bounds and functions and where it's going to end up. Um, and so uh, there there wasn't really necessarily a good title to base it off of, uh, and it sits somewhere between these two. I guess it's a little shorter than tech lead ampersand startup solution advisor. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wish there was like a better just like single word or, or like two words that could be put together for it. But um, yeah, no, I'm excited. And uh, it's just been uh, this is the end of the, my first two weeks in role. Um, and, um, you know, real, real quick on Jonas Brothers. So my my only tie to the Jonas Brothers is that I actually grew up in the same area as them. Ah. And that was one of the things where they went, I think, to the high school in the neighboring town or something like that. And as they got more and more famous, you used to hear people that would be like, oh, well, the Jonas Brothers, their family comes in and eats at my uncle's pizzeria or something like that. And it was like, oh, OK, that's cool. Um, but yeah, they, they are North Jersey natives, as am I. And so that that's all I got in Jonas Brothers, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, that's probably enough, at least enough yeah. for me anyway. So, yeah. um, well, so you've been at AWS for what, eight years now, something like that. It's been a very long time. Uh, yeah, I'm like nine years, four months or something like that. If you put oh, it all wow. together, I, I am technically a boomerang. So um, I first started in November of 2011. So I, had I not, um, well, so I started in November 2011. 
I left in December of 2014 for a few months to run infrastructure for a startup. Uh, and then I came back about six months later. So uh, had I not left, I would have hit 10 years here in a couple weeks. Uh, but instead, I'm about, you know, six or so, mo six or so months shy of that. Wow. So you, you have this new role now. Um, and it's yeah. like you said, it's sort of not quite fully defined. It's still sort of forming, yeah. which I think is awesome, by the way, because I, that is amazing when you get to that point where you've been in this business for so long now, you've had all this experience, you've seen all these different things from a number of different angles, and now you're coming in and you're really trying to use that experience and, and really help AWS um, focus on startups. So, so mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what you think this role is going to be. Yeah, um, I, I, would, I would say my, my career at AWS has been... Um, a bit different than what I would say the standard is, but I don't know if there's a standard at this point for AWS. You know, I came mm -hmm. in pretty early um, and when the field was very small and new. Um, back when when we used to meet with customers and you know the receptionist at a at an enterprise would be like, "There's folks here from Amazon, and I don't know what the bookstore people are doing here." Uh, type of comments. <laughs> um, uh, and then I've I've managed to uh, find myself in three completely unique like first time roles. So, uh, you know, before my time in the serverless space, I was the first ever um, global business development manager for the DevOps products at AWS. So all the development and management tools. And then uh, through conversations with uh, Ajay Nair who, and, and Tim Wagner, uh, ended up in Lambda. And, and those conversations were happening just about like five years ago now. And it took a couple of months to get through process and join that org. Um, Pre-Amazon, my career was in startups. So I started as... Uh, the, the very sexy title these days of systems administrator, um, which I don't think anyone admits that they are a systems administrator these days, but that's where I started my career, uh, working for startups like Etsy and Meetup um, and a couple other smaller ones. Um, so to a small degree, between the fact that when I first started at AWS, I did a lot of work with startups. Um, and then my pre, both, both my time in the middle between roles when I left for a little while and then all my career before Amazon was at startups, uh, to a degree, this is something that I've, I've really enjoyed doing is working really closely with small companies, um, you know, out there exploring new problems, exploring new challenges. So my current role uh, is going to be a mix of um, one really kind of helping to support the, the inside part of this business. So helping our startup solution architects, which are a brilliant, awesome group of people. Um, get even you know better at what they do and overcome challenges both organizationally. Amazon's a, a big company these days, a lot bigger than it was back in 2011. Um, and I would say also our customers have a lot more demands on us than they used to. You know, again, now that we don't have to say that we're not the bookstore, um, now we have to say that we're you know the provider of 200 plus services across you know 20 plus different categories um, and and all of the uniqueness of the challenges that come with that. So. Yeah, a big part of my role will be uh, the, I would say the advisor side of my role is helping internally the business get better at how we work with our startup customers. The tech lead part, I think, is acknowledging something um, which I, I actually saw a lot of in my former role, which is that even though a lot of these, these new technology paradigms are out there, you know, containers, serverless, um, uh, all sorts of other advanced concepts, I would say that a lot of startups are still building the way that they did eight, nine years ago. You know, and a lot of that lends itself to, uh, you know, one, some of those things are still newer in, in the industry. I think, two, from an educational standpoint, you know, if you think of the, the kind of cliche, you know, startup founded in a dorm room type of a thing, 
there aren't a lot of college CS professors that are teaching, you know, serverless or containers or a lot of the modern architectures that are out there. And, and you know, academia lags a bit behind uh, industry in that sense. So uh, another thing that I'm going to be focusing on is really how we message to startups like this is how you should be building um, very much in a forthright kind of out in their face way of saying, you know, as you're getting started, you should start here um, versus you know, where you might think that you should start based on other, you know, background paradigms and so forth. So within that, it's a lot of range. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, again, get to uh, do something new and different inside of AWS. Um, uh, and my manager and I keep talking about, we really don't know what like the next 60 to 90 days will bring. Um, but then it's that, that 90 to 180 that I, I guess I really have to kind of figure out why they keep paying me here. So, <laughs> I think, uh, to say forthright, uh, and direct is something that is immediately indicative of the Munns brand. If I can say that, um, <laughs> I think that same like Jersey candor that you grew up with that you bring to everything including to education. And so I want to touch on that because you're thinking about like education and how to shift that paradigm into a tech lead type startup space slash advisor, um, all the slashes that we can think of. Um, but I would be remiss to, especially at serverless chats, right? To um, mm -hmm. not mention the outpouring of love and admiration for the work that you did specifically in the serverless space when you mentioned that you were you're not moving out of the community, but you're moving on to a different role, right? And mm -hmm. and it's I think it's because of your extremely direct and candid approach to education, to developer advocacy, to um, really saying like, my favorite way that you described it once when we had an event is you said, this is the paradigm we should be building with, fight me on this. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you position these things in like yeah. a really, really intense statement in such a way to, to engender those conversations around best practices, what is the best way to do something. And so that's a really long lead in saying, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the, the very beginning when you discovered Lambda, right? Or like when you moved to that team and then what it was yeah. like putting together a dev advocacy team to give that candid forthright education. Yeah, uh, you know, first off to say, I was really very much humbled by uh, the responses that I got from folks in, in social media and outreach that I got. Uh, in, in the public sense and DMs and emails and things, both in my announcement that I was leaving the serverless org um, and then the announcement that I was joining the startup org. Um, and it was it was kind of uh, interesting to see uh, you know, people obviously in the startup side being like, oh, we're so sorry you're leaving. And then the folks in the, uh, sorry, in the service org saying that, but then the folks in the startup org being like, oh my God, yes, that's awesome. And um, <laughs> everyone was really, it, it, that to me was really special and I really appreciated that. Um, and it felt good that people said things like, you know, you, hey, you, you've had an impact on my career. Um, and to me in my time at AWS, uh, one of the biggest things for me is that concept that I've, I've had the ability to impact people. Um, uh, you know, maybe going all the way back to college, I was, a, you know, like a IT lab manager person and then I also help professors with courses and with teaching like a TA I guess and um, you know knowing that you help someone better themselves I think is, is one of the most noble things that we can do as humans is is that aspect of helping people so that's one thing that drives me a lot um, it's one thing in this role that I'll get to do a lot of mentorship not as a people manager but as an experienced individual inside of the business um, so that's that's that side of things um, you know 
for for me and i would say again going back to the early days of aws i realized pretty early on that uh you know the the one-on-one customer engagement model was not how the business was seeing success right it was that content it was one to many it was uh you know technical outreach in that sense um and i was really inspired by a lot of the uh, i would say early technical blogs that were out there um I used to work at uh, meetup.com uh, many moons ago now. Uh, and uh, I remember being really influenced back in the day by the tech blogs from companies like Flickr, um, pre, pre Yahoo acquisition, pre a whole other world of tech ecosystem. There were companies out there talking in depth about this is what we're building and why we're building it and how we're building it. Um, and I, I had then the honor to work actually alongside some of those people while at Etsy. Uh, and then Etsy had a really great technical blog that, again, also went in depth. And uh, there was a lot of you know conference speaking and things that other people did that I watched. I got to once upon a time I actually used to attend conferences to learn, not to have to speak and travel at them and represent AWS. So I think um, seeing that and and realizing the value of it, and then realizing once I got to AWS that oh wow, we we could and should be doing a lot more of this in in a technical bar that's high that gets people uh, you know, excited and adopting things. And so you know, early on, I did a lot of, uh, I started doing a lot of public speaking for AWS. I had a, uh, a presentation that I did called Scaling on AWS for your first 10 million users that I first did at a, a VC event in 2013. And uh, it, it became uh, the Chris Munns show that uh, your, your former friends, uh, Rebecca in, in marketing used to fly me all over and have me speak to startups and enterprises and other stuff this talk. And it was a it was a very straightforward story. Day one, you have one instance. How do you go from that forward and on? Um, so that was kind of my my lend into the educational space and into content creation and delivery and seeing the impact of that. For me, my experience with serverless actually starts um, pre-launch of Lambda um, when I was at AWS. I was one of the people who got kind of read in on the product. And I don't remember if it was by Tim or, or Jay back then. I think Tim was on the call. And um, I had, uh, you know, the, the original history and lineage of Lambda was it grew out of the S3 organization uh, to help customers that had interesting S3 challenges um, and, and kind of bring the compute to the storage in that sense. Uh, and I happened to have a couple of customers that were startups that were doing wild, crazy scale things with S3. So I remember learning about it being like, okay, this is pretty neat. This is pretty cool. Uh, and then it, it, it launched and uh, the responses to it were interesting. I think a lot of people were still trying to figure it out. Um, fast forward uh, a bit later, I, I left Amazon in December of that year, re rejoined in June of 2015. And um, I was actually, it was like my first week back at the job. Uh, I was at the New York City Summit when Werner announced API Gateway. And for me, I had I had a decent amount of knowledge of how internally we built products and APIs inside of Amazon. And uh, I'm familiar with some of the lineage that led to API Gateway. And when I saw API Gateway in Lambda, that for me was probably one of the biggest changes in how I thought about this technology space because it became like, oh my God, like people are building APIs like crazy right now. And it, and it lends itself to the mobile and device space and microservices and all these things that we see. And the fact that you could get the benefits of serverless, of you know, the high availability, the scale, the pay for what you use, 
um, all, all of those kind of good things, you know, the, the, the lack of servers as it were, right? Which to me, as a person that used to call himself a systems administrator, uh, getting rid of those systems um, sounds incredibly appealing. So that was probably for me, the really big, really big aha moment where I thought I'm probably gonna end up spending a lot of my day-to-day -day talking about this space. Uh, and then I did, and then it grew, and then, you know, it kind of took forward from there. So that, that was probably the, the big aha thing, um, seeing customers doing interesting things with S3 and uh, you know some of the other early event source models that were there, like Kinesis was really cool. And then uh, similarly, um, Step Functions. I'm a huge Step Functions fan. Yep. Really excited about yesterday's launch of um, uh, the direct integration with APIs. Um, that's really cool stuff. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was also in the org when we started talking about the plans for EventBridge and what EventBridge would be. And, and that to me helps fill in another major piece of the puzzle. Yep. And so I, I think those two there and, and the general kind of event driven model, which it took me a little while to, to grok all the pictures of all of that. Um, I, that to me is, is, is still the future of, of application development. Yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned sort of grokking the um, event driven aspect of these things because that's you also mentioned earlier you know the these engineering blogs which were not very common right you could find them mm -hmm. but I remember when I first started building in the cloud uh, two thousand nine two thousand ten or so it was like trying to find out how to do things I mean you were limited mostly to the documentation and somebody would be like oh I kind of did this thing and you could kind of get a little bit of information from it um, but that how um, the how was. Uh, was important, uh, important like how you know how do you actually do these things? Um, but I think the why was also really important. And like you said, this understanding of um, event-driven architecture. And again, Lambda honestly was a very cool product. But then as soon as you could hook up an API to it, suddenly it became a whole new thing. Um, yeah. Event bridge, step functions, all these other things changed this paradigm. So I'm just curious, like we started seeing content early. I mean, like serverless framework and these other and other people using it started putting out content early on in terms of um, sort of the hows and the whys of these things. But I'm just curious, like what your experience was um, and what was sort of the drive internally to to get people to sort of normalize not only this way of thinking, but also this idea of just being really public about how you build these different types of applications. Yeah. Um, I... Wow, I'm trying to think of, of all the different things to unpack there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we you know, ask really hard-hitting questions on serverless chat, so. Yeah. I think when we look at, so S3, you look at the lineage of S3, it grew out of a need that Amazon.com had for what they realized was object storage, not file volumes and NFS and all this kind of stuff. So S3, you know, comes out of, you know, the .com need, grows internally, um, becomes something that, gets used in, in ways that I think today, if people even understood what the rest of Amazon does with products like S3, they'd be like, wow, that's actually really interesting that it's used that way. Um, and and I should, maybe I should say abused in certain ways as well. Right. So we look at things like Lambda, we see obviously you know the external customer need. I think we also see some of the internal need that was there. And you know even after Lambda launched, um, the interest internally at Amazon was really strong. It, it's probably, I mean, I mean, Werner always talks about Lambda being this, uh, you know, the compression algorithm for experience type of a product. And it, in my mind, represents foundationally how Amazon thinks about uh, how it wants to build and manage stuff. 
you know, going back to reInvent last year, uh, back when Andy was just just the lowly CEO of AWS, not <laughs> not now the the head cheese, as it were. The data point that we were really excited to share around the uh, percent of um, compute workloads from Amazon that were Lambda driven, which ended up being like just shy of 50%. Um, and uh, uh, we didn't put up what the other 50% was, but it was a mix of containers and EC2 and the different offerings inside of those. Lambda was overwhelmingly the majority of that. That to me is fascinating, right? Amazon is tens of thousands of developers. Um, you know, the, the old kind of Death Star diagram of all the different services and points that we would have, it's just so massive these days. And the fact that so many teams are saying Lambda is the way that we're going to solve our compute need, um, I think to me is, is still one of the, the largest testaments to just what the opportunity is there. Now, what are some of the differences between what Amazon can do and what other people do? Well, we have dedicated teams that made it really easy to build and deploy those things. We have people internally sharing patterns and best practices as quickly as they're being defined. And, you know, an internal kind of trust model where people just eat that stuff up. Um, so I, I think um, if, I'm, if I'm trying to stay on topic here with what some of the, the question is, you know, I think that's where you know, we see at least the excitement in the space continuing to grow. Now the event-driven model, um, I think kind of aligns itself as well internally in the business. You know, if you look at, for example, Werner's blog, uh, back when we, uh, maybe it was last year, there was a Werner blog about, you know, kind of why DynamoDB existed and how we looked at all of these workflows that we had. And we said, these aren't relational database needs. These are key value store needs. And really when you think about key value store needs, you do end up being able to align yourself back to this event-driven concept, um, which then of course lines itself to the, the functions as a service compute model really well, which leads to Lambda. And so um, as we started identifying that, and then, you know, technically the first services at AWS besides S3, um, you know, SNS and SQS, those are also effectively event-driven services. Right. Like, all the way back, you know, almost 20 years ago, we're effectively seeing this without realizing that that's kind of what was happening. And, um, you know, I think that that's lend itself to, okay, well, you know, early on uh, SNS, and then, you know, maybe one of the biggest misses we had going back to 2014 was not having SQS as a native integration for Lambda. I think had we launched it on stage with that, people probably would have, yeah, would have been like, oh my God, that makes the most sense in the world. This completely aligns like, you know, so directly. Um, so and I think, took, yeah. It took four event, more years before that. It was 2018, I think, that that was integrated, right? Yeah, it did. It, did. it took a couple more years. Um, various various reasons for that, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, it remains, it, it is today an incredibly incredibly popular invoke source for Lambda functions. And just uh, recently, and, just, and just recently, now you can invoke Lambda functions from an SQS in another account, yes, which is yes, super I exciting saw, for me. I saw your thread on that. I applaud <laughs> it. That, that there's a lot of good logic there. Um, and, and I think we're at the point now where you can invoke a Lambda function from all of the main, you know, messaging services at AWS. Uh, you can do a lot of this stuff cross account, um, which lends itself to the best practices that we have inside of the cloud. Uh, and, you know, again, you're doing this in a very simplified way without managing polars and managing all these other things across account, which would be a lot more complex. 
Hi everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. So it sounds like you're talking about learning curves, both internally and externally, right? Things that we noticed over time. And as a short aside, uh, when we launched S2S as a native integration into Lambda, I was the head PMM on that. And I was so elated to see how elated it made people. Um, mm-hmm. And I was still just getting into the serverless space. I mean, I've been around, I mean, six months, so I guess it's like 11 years in the Amazon time or something. Uh, but I, my it, hair was it, jet. My hair was jet black. Jet black. Jet yeah. black in 2018. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more though about that those curves. There's a learning curve, and then there's an adoption curve, right? And so I'm wondering what you've seen regarding customers at different stages, and then now when you look at that adoption curve specifically in your role for startups, like how do you see serverless mixing into workloads? Obviously, Amazon is a huge customer, um, and so are, do you. Do we take specific things and learnings from Amazon as a giant customer? Do they live in their own kind of realm because they're sort of their own kind of beast? And then there are other customers that like have very direct um, like adoption models and curves that you see and how you approach them based on where they are in their company journey. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to Lambda that mirrors the overall general experience that I think we've seen with AWS as a whole. Uh, and the companies that are most successful with AWS uh, as a whole are those that really look to adopt the fullness of what the platform has to offer. Um, and, and there's someone out there who's going to say like, well, of course, the guy who sells the cloud is going to say that you should buy more of the cloud to be happy with it. I was almost going to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it's, it's, it's kind of the reality, right? Like we, we build these various yeah. Lego pieces as I'm sitting here fumbling with a Lego in my hand. Um, we build these various Lego pieces with specific nubs on them to plug into the other components. Um, and as you combine them, you get great power that comes out the other side of it. You know, there's a couple of different challenges that I think within the serverless space uh, that lend itself to being um, maybe more complicated than some other parts of the cloud that we have at AWS today is that you you often do have more components or, you know, different components. And the way that you plug those components together is a bit different than how people would have done it in other places. Um, you know, again, I think you, you look at kind of the uh, going back to the academic model of things. You know, 
a college professor is going to start explaining things at the level of the TCP stack and CPU processors and port and sockets and things like that, because that's a core foundational concept. Um, and it makes sense that you teach people that to get to the point where you would advance up to an invoke source and a compute behind an API paradigm um, and a function as a service is really elevating far, far, far beyond um, that initial core concept of you know, binary and uh, machine languages and, and other kind of stuff that you see in, in, in that sense. And so a big part of, I think, the, uh, the, the challenge for the serverless space is still getting people up over that hump effectively, getting them to mind shift and understand what is different um, versus what also is the same. And there is still a lot that's the same. So, you know, realistically, a lot of the code that you write in a Lambda function, uh, or really any fast offering today, you know, functions as a service offering, is the same kind of code you would run somewhere else. You're talking to databases, you're talking to other API endpoints, you're potentially talking to other managed services. Um, you know, how that code runs, where it runs from becomes the biggest thing that changes. So I still, I still think our biggest challenges today are educational. Just, just flat out, it's it's getting people to understand that little bit of difference that, yeah, you don't have a port and socket, you have an event source and it's gonna send some sort of event structure down to you and then you're gonna have to work within that. Um, and again, I think the companies, and uh, I remain unbelievably blown away by the work that, for example, uh, Lego has done. Sitting <laughs> here talking about yeah. Lego. <laughs> and some of the other awesome people there at Lego uh, and you know they're heavy. They're they're great. Heavy adoption of serverless uh, product portfolio really shows that they are saying, yeah, if we push ourselves to understand the various ways that this works and the various ways that these two nubs plug together in certain forms and fashions, we're seeing dramatic benefits. I mean, I remember at uh, Serverless Days London 2019, um, I spoke actually right after Sheen. Uh, and I, I, I announced EventBridge on stage there. Um, but before that, Sheen was talking about some of their early explorations and iterations into serverless and how they were doing big things with very small teams um, inside of a big company that was used to doing things with much bigger teams. And you know they had to do some due diligence, they had to do some homework, they had to explore a bit. But now you come out, you know, two years later, and they are, you know, effectively what we call a serverless-first organization. They're going to explore serverless technologies as the number one offering, uh, or, or the, the default offering, uh, and then they will, you know, back onto other more traditional compute offerings if they absolutely need to. Um, so I think, you know, again, that that's a, a great like poster child example of we put in the effort to understand that we had to use these other bits of the cloud to get this benefit. But then the long-term outcome that we're seeing is, you know, I'm sure reflective in the bottom line of the business somewhere. For for those who don't know, um, Chris Mund is calling out Sheen Bristles, who as an AWS serverless hero has worked at Lego for a super long time, really pushed the envelope on it. And you can follow him and learn a ton on Twitter at Sheen Bristles, S-H-E-E-N-B-R-I-S-A-L-S. Mm -hmm. um, and he does create like really, really excellent, helpful content. And so I just want to put that out there since Chris has been talking about him. And Nicole, yeah. uh, Nicole Yip um, internally uh, is running yes. the team that sort of standardizes all of the, the serverless practices. So uh, amazing things there. So I'm going to continue to extend this Lego 
um, I don't know, analogy as far as we can take it. Um, but yeah. one of the things that I, you know, that you mentioned in there was, you know, different ways to connect things, different sort of, you know, nubs on the Lego that connect in. And, and I was looking at it as like, when it first started, a service comes out and it's sort of like a Lego, just a single Lego block, you know, that you use like for a castle turret or something. You get like one, one nub on there, right? And that nub uh-huh. is maybe I connect through the SDK. And then all of a sudden you add another nub and you're like, oh, I can also plug this into Lambda. But then we start adding more and more nubs because other things can fit in different ways. And and if you think about Lambda, uh, the initial paradigm was I, I make an API gateway request. API gateway integrates with Lambda. Lambda then d- calls the SDK and writes something to DynamoDB or pulls something from DynamoDB. And that was a very standard practice. It was that you have a service, Lambda's yeah. the glue, another service on the other side of it. Then suddenly you come up with service integration. It's like, well, I can have an API gateway call DynamoDB directly, and I can have API Gateway write something to SQS directly or read something. Um, And then you start building those integrations. Then EventBridge gets involved. Now you've got transformations that you can do, and you can actually make changes to data and shift things around. You've got step functions that can do that. And now with the new release of step functions, there's just so much Lambda function code that you can cut out completely. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I kind of would love to just go back for a second and, and maybe... If you could give us some insight, I don't know who's thinking this was, but it is really interesting. And, and mm-hmm. Sheen Brizzles mentions functionless all the time. This yeah. idea of going from using Lambda as a glue to getting more and more configurations into the service connections themselves, and then even eliminating um, some of this you know custom code that we have to write and using these service connections to do that. What was sort of the the I guess the evolution of that, and and how w- did it have to be evolutionary because the services weren't there yet? Um, but I don't know, just maybe expand on that a little bit because I, I find that fascinating yeah. where this is heading. I think this is just this, th- this is literally a, a straight line from the start, right? This is that we internally at Amazon are going to build services to enable our developers and operations people to not have to build and run stuff themselves. So you go all the way back to S3 and EC2 and some of these earlier things of remove burden, remove burden, remove operational toil, remove low hanging work. Um, and then that extends itself up through, hey, people don't like, people want an easier way to get compute to S3 data or process Kinesis streams. Um, and then you move up through, hey, people want an easier way to build APIs and process the backend on that. And then, you know, where you keep kind of getting to is this point where people are like, well, I just want to call an API. I just want to call an AWS API and I want to take that code and I want to say, if it passed, do this, if it failed, do this other thing. Um, and uh, you know, really, this is just that continued evolution of us saying, how can we simplify this? How can we make this better for certain workloads in certain places? So um, I, I think really that's that's at the end of the day, the core of it is we're, we're looking every day at like, what are people doing with the service? And is that really viable to their business? Uh, and in that sense, I think the continued kind of integration points and plugins where you can remove a lot of that code because you can say, you know, this fits a majority of what people are doing with the data from this thing. Um, you know, are people going to completely take, uh, you know, complex processing of events from, or, or like query response from certain APIs and completely disentangle it into a step functions when it could be maybe just a couple, like 20 lines of Lambda that has some sort of regex in the middle of it? Right. Probably not. Um, but there's a lot of places where I think it does make sense and it can be really helpful. And again, to my, my previous point, again, it's one of these where if you're willing to take in that 
the collective benefit of these services being put together, your direct outcome of that collective benefit should be that, you know, agility, faster time to market, you know, insanely reduced operational burden. Um, I uh, used to give a, uh, a, a under NDA talk to customers uh, in, in executive briefings. And it was effectively called like the, the culture of development at Amazon. And I would talk about the whole two pizza team paradigm where you are both the developer and operator of your service. And you can just think of a very basic scale where, you know, the more operational burden you have, the less time you're spending on development, the less time you're spending delighting your customers and your leadership and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but as you find ways to continue to reduce operational burden, right, more managed services, even less code that you have to maintain and write, then you're immediately going to spend so much more of that time in the on the product side on delighting your customers, on you know delighting your leadership, um, and all of that. That it just becomes a no-brainer. Um, and I think again, this lends itself back to the Lambda adoption. I would love for us to see a couple of years down the line, um, we say, wow, you know what? Um, I don't even know. You could even say like 50% of compute workloads are step functions. There would have to be some sort of right. other adoption metric that we can say of, you know, oh, wow, internally at Amazon, the adoption of the step functions, you know, API capability represents X amount of, of workloads. Um, I think we'll get there because I think it, this is one of those things that benefits folks like that as well. Yeah, and I do wonder if that's also it's like adds to the uh, the burden or that that sort of mind shift burden where you you start trying to drive people towards event driven stuff, and then you start telling them, oh, by the way, as those events are passing through, uh, through the system, you can actually manipulate them. You can do things like that. It's just mm -hmm. another thing that sort of um, uh, I think makes the adoption a little bit harder. But I think you're right. If you're willing to go down that rabbit hole and start looking at what the system can do, um, you know, they say not to drink the Kool-Aid, but the Kool-Aid tastes pretty good in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think I think there are a lot of customer success stories in companies that are really technology forward and aggressive, you know, the capital ones of the world. Again, companies like Lego, um, you, you know, a number of others where it's clear that the teams and the folks involved have uh, put in the time to say, you know, we're going to learn this different model because we're, we're obviously seeing the benefits of it um, and then continuing to expand upon that. So I think, you know, with all of the with, with that announcement yesterday, um, that's going to be a really interesting one to see roll into more and more customer workloads here in the near future. And I think it'll be great when we live in a world where we never put any of Eric Johnson's code into production. <laughs> <laughs> You know, going back to the whole like computeless paradigm, actually, Eric wrote some really great content on this um, uh, back in 2019 in uh, API Gateway direct to other backends mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of completely removing the Lambda layer. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, some of this stuff isn't as new as it might seem. Uh, it's just not as, as widespread as, you know, our, our thought leaders like Eric Johnson are in this in this space. Yeah, I. OK, so. I want to pull this thread a little bit more then in terms of like how this starting point, right? And then as a tech lead, I'm going to try to get this right, tech lead slash advisor to serverless, mm -hmm. no, no, startup solutions architects. I'm imagining that um, even though it feels like even in 2019, right, there's been great content around this and there's been content around and we feel like this should probably be sort of uh, pervasive in the vernacular, but yet it isn't quite yet, or, or maybe mm -hmm. in some moments it's not. 
Yeah. So I'm wondering if, if you're seeing now as an advisor to these startups, like what is the persistent question that they keep asking? Like the hurdle that they need to get over? Or is there some sort of pattern of a blocker where they're like, could we really adopt this? Do we really want to reach out and play with these Legos? Um, and and yeah. if there's something like one core aspect where you're like, let's get past this, let's resolve it, and then we can move forward. Yeah, um, you know, I think it, it comes back to, to to a large degree to education. So not just education externally, but education internally. Um, and that's where the advisor part of my role comes in is, is helping to make sure, for example, like the startup field has a good grasp on what is the tip of the spear that we should be telling our customers? How should we be proactively guiding them towards these patterns that actually will align really well with what they're trying to accomplish and that once achieved will provide the kind of benefits to a startup that they want to see. Um, you know, startups struggle with two main things, time and money. Um, you burn mm -hmm. through one and you burn through the other. So how do we get them to, to be better about that? And I think, again, that's the true outcome that we see in these things is, you know, the two pizza team model is a mini startup model inside of Amazon. Uh, and it, it's the same thing, again, right? It's time and money. So I think um, uh, part of it is that that education uh, internally and externally. Um, part of it is obviously I think the noise of the industry. You know, there's a lot that's going on in a lot of different places. There's a lot of exciting things in different places, and um, you know, making sure that we get this information in front of the you know quote unquote white right crowds is um, another challenge that's mine, and it's it's marketing's and it's you know the product teams and all of that kind of stuff. You know, in, in where and how maybe adoption isn't, uh, uh, you know, externally the same way as it is internally. Um, again, I think it's a combination of all of these things. It's, you know, people who have been doing development for years that are comfortable with what they're doing and they maybe don't see the need to change or push for those benefits because that comfort is there. Um, there are people that have various you know, decisions around tech stacks that they like, um, uh, you know, for, for various both personal reasons and other reasons that exist out there. Um, uh, and I think that's something that's, that's there too. You know, I think, um, you know, in talking about how Amazon so heavily has dogfooded Lambda and this event-driven concept and functions as a service, that's not the same for our competitors yet. Um, and they have their own paradigms and models and things that they champion. And um, a, a lot of them don't have uh, a technology capability like Lambda. Are I mean, you saying Google day, doesn't run on Google Cloud? That just sounds crazy, Chris. Um, I, 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 won't, I won't make any statements no about uh, competitors <laughs> for Amazon. I will focus on the needs of my customer. Um, uh, but I think, I think that lends itself to part of it, you know, um, and, and that, that was part of the challenge in the developer advocacy team and role and in our, our friends in, in product marketing and other parts of the business and the field teams and everything else is get everyone to understand just the sheer value that comes out of this. Um, you know, AWS, when it launched, launched without competition. So we could go out in a vacuum and talk about the awesomeness of AWS and you either could see it or you couldn't, but there wasn't like another option besides what you already were doing, right? The, the large companies that I worked with back in 2012, who were the, you know, why is the bookstore people here kind of folks, they had data centers and they had operations teams and they had uh, all of this stuff they'd been doing for a long time. Um, and it was the startup space that I think really blew up the initial early parts of AWS 
and uh, you know help make AWS into what it is today. So uh, you know, cloud is the default for startups. That's pretty much solved and done. Um, obviously, I think in the enterprise space, we're you know we always say we're in the early days of a really long journey, but we already see so many so many huge enterprises that are moving whole heart into the cloud. But they're doing so they're moving into the cloud with you know existing stuff and new stuff and everything else and so the difference between you know greenfield and existing stacks and migrations and all this other stuff it's all just part of the big part of the picture um but i want to get i want to get the industry to a point where when you're building a new compute workload um, even even in my space here in the startup work you're evaluating serverless as the start of that stack um and i i think that that's still to me um, one of the key things that I see is is possible, especially as we see the capabilities of these products grow. You know, again, yeah, maybe maybe next year that my old team, uh, you know, the also folks that are on that team will be spending most of their time talking about step functions, API integrations. That would be great. Um, there would not be a downside to that. But um, there will be some people who are like, hey, I'm still just trying to migrate this SQL server over from my my data center that's under Bob's desk in the office. Um, so there's, you know, again, it's a lot of a lot. Uh, the, the complexity is a shift. Uh, the education is, is multifaceted. Um, and, and, you know, now we're not doing this all in a vacuum. So there are other players and competitors and other technologies that are uh, vying for people's attention. I want to ask you a little bit more about the education piece, um, or especially the developer advocacy piece, um, yeah. especially because one, you grew, you you grew a team. I think at, there's you know was seven developer avocados uh, at like some point, and um, and they're so invaluable in terms of getting education out there. I mean, they were doing Twitch streams, they were giving conferences, they were doing meetups. They were writing blog posts and 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 when I talk to other customers now, especially in the developer relations space, right? People are like, I cannot hire enough developer advocates. Like there are not enough yeah. developer advocates in the world. Um, it's it's I don't want to say it's an emerging space, but in a way, it's a space where people are only now or in the last five years, I think, really saying we value education and this is a way to help evangelize our product so people actually know how to use and adopt them. Um yep. when as a, as a hiring manager who built a super excellent team, I'm wondering what what you would look for when looking for a developer advocate. What types of content was super strong and what you saw resonate most? Like, what could you perhaps, maybe someone is like, okay, I'm a programmer today, but I'm actually more interested in getting into the educational side of things. Like, what should they know? Uh, what does that feel like when you're looking at that field and you're a hiring yeah. manager looking for a developer uh, advocate? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I ever uh, said this to you previously, but I've joked with peers over the years that was I ever, am I or was I ever a developer advocate with not yet writing my own like opus on on what the role <laughs> means and what the job is? And it seems like there are a lot of my peers uh, in roles like that across industry that are like life of a developer advocate and how we think about it. Um, and so, yeah, I did it for four and a half years in one of the biggest beasts and helped define the role and then hire and then grow the team. Uh, and I'm excited to to say that I think the team will grow again next year beyond where where I got it to. Um, so and then I was a big part of helping other teams expand the developer advocacy. So I've probably done well over a hundred in person interviews, probably read a couple hundred resumes, and helped something like a dozen plus different product teams decide to invest in the same area. Um, 
you know, why? I, I think for one, in, uh, you know, again, going back to one of the, what we were talking about earlier, um, this self-help aspect of the cloud, the fact that a majority of people who use it end up using it without talking to anyone, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's key for businesses in that sense where, you know, you have a SaaS offering where you again have that model where sales is not gatekeeping the sales of your product, then content is king. And, uh, you know, having a team or individuals that can produce that content in the tone and voice that your customers are looking for uh, is, is critical to the business, as critical as the product itself. Um, you know, I have a number of strong opinions about developer advocacy uh, candidates and hires. For one, for me, it is not uh, a role for someone who is necessarily super young or new to the industry. Um, I think it does require a, a, a trust that can be earned and a credibility and an experience in some part of the industry that lends itself to, I can get on stage and talk about previous experiences and how maybe they align. I think it requires um, an incredible attention to detail in, in content creation uh, and an ability to really empathize with where the customers are. You know, we, uh, as, as you might remember, so I, I, I still own the AWS Compute blog. Uh, I will continue to brag publicly until it isn't that it is the, the number one topic blog at AWS. It gets a lot of eyeballs on it every month. We had a very high bar for what content could be published on that blog. Uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm happy now that I have uh, James Bezik on the team uh, who uh, maliciously, maliciously reviews that content and keeps it at such a high bar um, that, that people strongly dislike him for it. But I love him like a brother for the <laughs> fact that he does that. Um, and it, I think that's really key. I think that's really key. Like when you read a crappy technical tutorial, um, that impacts your ability to do things. You know, when something is surface level and either doesn't maybe link to other resources or go deeper on a topic, that's gonna effectively block a sale or block an adoption. So I would, you know, really look at, you know, okay, well, what's the content you've delivered? What is the value to that? Um, I believe that there has to be a strategy for that insofar as how people write stuff. So I would see people say, hey, I just like writing technical blogs. Why? What motivated you? Um, how did you make sure that that was the right content for readers? What feedback have you taken or not that might adjust you in, do, in, in writing that or changing that in one way or, or, or different? Um, you know, I'm not necessarily super passionate about the different, um, uh, about one mechanism over another. There's a bunch of data that's out there that talks about, you know, people like blogs, they like technical tutorials, uh, you know, they like you know, videos and podcasts and stuff like that. And um, how do you, uh, you know, align, you know, if you have a, a Twitch show or a podcast, are you bringing people back to code, to samples, to examples and things like that? I think that's key versus just talking. Um, and so I think that's the stuff that separates the better developer advocates in the industry versus not. I think there's also the awareness that at the end of the day, developer advocacy is uh, a role that crosses various chasms. It is a marketing role. It is also a sales role. It is also a development role. Um, it is also a customer support role. Um, it, it, is, it is all of those things. Um, I personally was not a fan of candidates who were looking for, um, I, I out of college spent a little bit of time at a hedge fund uh, pre-2008, which I'll, I'll say were the, the key, you know, models and bottles years of that industry in New York City. Um, uh, 
developer advocacy, I, I think, is most poorly done by the folks who are like, I want to be on a plane 24-7. I just want to fly around and shake hands and, and talk on stages and things like that. I think that when you do that, you lose the ability to uh, spend the time and focus necessary to really understand your product and its problems and your customers uh, and then create that valuable content that's going to lead them to being successful. Yeah, and, and definitely plus one for uh, the content that James and Eric and Julian and, and the whole team are doing. It's top-notch content. I mean, it, it's wonderful to read because you know it's tec technically accurate. Uh, it's always mm -hmm. really engaging, and there's always really, really good diving in just to the right level, I think, uh, for a lot of what they do. Um, I do have a bit of advice for developer advocates. If you call yourself a developer avocado, you can charge a dollar extra. Sorry, I was just in this dad mode, uh, dad, dad yeah. joke mode uh, from the yeah. Jonas Brothers earlier today. But anyways, so um, one, uh, uh, I guess one last question because we're running out of time. But um, mm -hmm. I want to get just go back to the startup thing for a second. You mentioned time and money. Um, of course, time and money are always the constraints that a lot of these people have. Um, and I think that a lot of startups don't necessarily recognize especially highly technical startups, um, don't recognize that when you add those two things together, really, we're talking about TCO, right? We're talking about total cost of ownership. And just, mm -hmm. I'd love it if you could just give, like, what would your pitch be to a startup right now? Um, if a startup came to you and said, why should I build with serverless? What would that pitch be? Yeah. Um, uh, well, it's kind of what you just said, right? It's this understanding that, hey, you're looking to get, you're looking to find uh, a market fit and adoption and awareness. Uh, that involves you investing in your product and investing in uh, sometimes the, the money to get the voice uh, of your product out there and marketing and things like that. Um, what you don't want to be doing is spending time on technology toil. And in my mind, running instances, running container orchestration, uh, running bespoke open source software just because it's open and free uh, does not mean that the energy involved in running that is open and free. Right. And so anything that you can do to shove responsibility onto something that you don't have to manage is going to give you back that time and money to focus on those things that are critical and key to you. And so from a startup perspective, to me, any of the, the stuff that can be solved by a managed service or a SaaS offering, I'm, I'm running to at full speed. Um, and, uh, you know, again, making sure that I am uh, aware of the other side of that. And so, you know, people talk about the comparisons between say Lambda and EC2, obviously those are a, a apples to onions comparison in terms of what's really there from a product perspective. But it's, I think it's important to understand that your people time uh, and all of the work that goes involved in managing some of these things, I, I've lived it. Um, and I wish that I could have been more useful to the businesses that I worked for by not having to spend time managing those things. So I, th I think it's very much a, a one plus one equals two. You're, you're taking time away from doing toil. You're freed up to spend time on your business. You know, on average, that should lend itself out to a more successful outcome. Yeah. And I Can I add to that? Oh, I was just going to say, I've worked for so many startups and wasted so many hours. I, I totally agree with you. Just so many hours wasted. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think there's, or what I've heard, right, for in terms of like hands-on builders and practitioners is it's not just the time, like the exact time spent, but also the quality of life they feel from what they work on. So there mm -hmm. is this like quality, happiness, or like empowerment component that I think even goes beyond just time and toil, but also like personal, like break, like aggravation that like builds over time, which is a whole other sort of dimension to consider. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, 
I have stories of pre-Amazon days of ruined, ruined holidays, of, of ruined dates, of um, all sorts of things where, uh-oh, something happened in a data center and, and I had to get to that data center where I had to get on a laptop and do a thing that, hey, if I had auto scaling um, or obviously if I had things like Lambda, I would have never had to worry about you know, web server 0003 going boom, uh, it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, and so again, I think I think there's just a lot, yes, to that that overall condition of life and satisfaction and happiness that comes from spending your time and money on the things that are more valuable to you. So serverless adds to your quality of life. I think we can end it, on, it on that. Um, well, yeah. Chris, thank you so much. I, I I know that you're you're busy. You've got a lot of tech leading and advising to do. Um, <laughs> exactly. But uh, but if people want to follow you on social media or find out more about what you're doing, maybe go to the Compute blog. How do they do that? Yeah. So I mean, for for me right now, uh, uh, at Chris Munns on Twitter is probably your best bet. Uh, I would encourage people who are interested in serverless to also check out serverlessland.com, which is a site that my team launched last year, which has a ton of content on it. Uh, And then again, for me, me as an individual, you know, Chris Munns on LinkedIn or on Twitter is is the best way to reach out. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll get that in the show notes. We'll also put a link to the Compute blog because again, amazing content there. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you both. Good to see you. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Chris Munns for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 113. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sound up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odelay and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.